Hello, and welcome to Leading Community Colleges in California, a podcast that goes in-depth with California's most effective leaders in higher education in the largest public sector of higher education in the United States, California Community Colleges. I'm your host, Larry Galizio, President and CEO of the Community College League of California. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Leading Community Colleges in California. I'm Larry Galizio, President and CEO of the Community College League of California. Our guest for this, our inaugural podcast, is Dr. Constance Carroll, Chancellor of the San Diego Community College District. Chancellor Carroll has led the San Diego Community College District since 2004 and has served for over four decades in higher education, including 11 years as president of Mesa College, which is in the same district. We really don't have time to list all of Chancellor Carroll's awards and accomplishments, but I'll highlight just a few. At the age of 33, Dr. Carroll became the youngest black woman college president in the United States when she served as president of Indian Valley College. She was appointed by then-President Barack Obama in 2011 for a six-year term to the National Council on the Humanities. She is the state leader and a national leader on the Community College Baccalaureate degree and the founder of the California Community College Baccalaureate Degree Association. One article described Chancellor Carroll as one of the largest developers in the San Diego area having led bond campaigns totaling over $1 billion for the San Diego Community College District, including an $870 million bond passed in 2006. So Chancellor Carroll, welcome to Leading Community Colleges in California. Thank you, Dr. Grazio. I hope I got most of that information correct. Almost, just one little thing. Tell me, what, what? Uh, when I started as a community college president, I was 31, not 33. Um, oh, okay. Really, wow. really neo- neophyte. <laughs> Just a couple of years ago. Yes. Well, wonderful. So on leading community, co- we pre- thank you for being here. On leading community colleges in California, our goal is really to spotlight leaders within California community colleges and community colleges nationally. And first, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to ask questions uh, concerning your background and some influences that lead, uh, have led you to where you are. So I was very interested to read, um, especially about your mother's very challenging uh, set of circumstances and experience, simply trying to obtain higher education in uh, Maryland, in segregated Maryland. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about that and perhaps what influence uh, that has had on you? Um, yes, um, I, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland and, uh, with two, uh, two parents, both of whom were educators. Uh, my mother uh, was deputy superintendent of the Baltimore city school system. And my father was a high school principal and football coach. Um, however, my mother, has had a tremendous impact upon me, um, my life and values, um, was um, uh, 
denied admission to the University of Maryland when she graduated from uh, Morgan State uh, University, which was a, 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 an all African-American institution because uh, the state of Maryland and the University of Maryland were still struggling with uh, desegregation and integration and still fighting it uh, as hard as they, they could. In the end, the, um, the state reached an accord, which was um, ironic. They uh, agreed to pay for the tuition, room and board, and all expenses for any eligible African-American student, graduate student, um, uh, with the proviso that they attend some other institution outside of the state of Maryland. Um, and so my mother uh, went to um, uh, do her master's degree at uh, the University of Chicago, one of the most expensive private uh, universities in the country, and one of the best, especially in areas affecting education. Um, and the irony is that the, the state of Maryland would pay uh, 20 times the cost uh, for people like my mother to attend these institutions rather than to allow them to set foot uh, on a property of the University of Maryland. Very, um, it can make one cynical. And it made my mother a little cynical uh, as well, but it also made her determined. The, um, the upshot was after she got her degree and came back and time passed, she was determined that she would uh, complete a program at the University of Maryland that had rejected her in such a, a terrible way. And so she ended up uh, being accepted uh, 20 some years later when things were a little more lenient. And she became the first African-American woman to uh, earn a doctorate from the University of Maryland. In fact, uh, this year, uh, the, the well, last year, the Graduate uh, Education School uh, celebrated her. And this year, the university itself uh, is, is giving her a legacy award uh, because of her her history and her, um, her tenacity and the fact that she was a first, a very large first in the history of the uh, University of Maryland. Um, so that affected me in many ways, uh, one of which was um, I did something similar. Uh, when it was time for me to uh, go to college, uh, there was still so much turmoil uh, in Maryland and turmoil in Baltimore that I decided to go to school in Pennsylvania, anywhere but Maryland. Um, and so when you take a look at history um, and uh, know that Maryland was a slave state and that the Mason-Dixon line runs through uh, uh, Baltimore, uh, you can understand the history of, um, of resistance, uh, the history of white, the white supremacist movement uh, and, uh, and other things. <clears throat> but the big lesson from my mother is, uh, for me was, uh, never to give up on your goal and to pursue your goal tenaciously until you achieved it. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and uh, she would be um, amused to see all of the fanfare surrounding her uh, at the University of Maryland uh, this year, which is their, their legacy celebration year. Uh, but in the end, she was very, very proud uh, to have received um, her, <clears throat> her doctorate from the University of Maryland. Remarkable. What, was, she, was she alive when you 
who were 31 and you became the first? She was, yeah, she was, she was very, very pleased. Um, the, the other piece for students of history was, was this, during segregation in uh, Baltimore, which was a major city, uh, there were two departments of education. There was the Negro Department of Education and there were the Baltimore City Schools. And um, when things finally were integrated, what happened was not a merger, but a takeover. The Baltimore City Schools swept over the Negro Department of Education and most of the administrators were lost their jobs or, or were sent back into the classroom. My mother and father were two exceptions who made it through um, those, those particular hurdles. And uh, my mother ended up um, as an area superintendent and a deputy and an assistant superintendent and ended her career as a deputy superintendent of the Baltimore City Schools, which was again, a huge accomplishment uh, within a, um, an organization that had uh, rejected uh, so many African-American administrators in the past. Um, and she ended up as the, um, uh, probably at the time, one of, one of the most prominent uh, uh, community leaders in Baltimore and in the state of Maryland. Uh, we, she knew many people. She knew um, Nancy Pelosi's father. She, she knew um, um, S uh, Senator Barbara McCloskey uh, and some other people. And um, uh, our family had, was uh, awash in rich relationships. Thurgood Marshall, uh, Cab Calloway, all kinds of, uh, uh, of people. And so it was a wonderful way to grow up, even though the society was segregated. Uh, our life within the bubble uh, that we were allowed to uh, uh, work and live in, uh, our life was, was splendid. And uh, I, I wouldn't have traded it for, wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, you had some, sounds like you had something of an intellectual salon uh, in terms of oh, company. Yeah. That's, that, that's uh, one way to describe it, yes, absolutely. And, you know, often whether it's education or law or other professions, sometimes when your parents are lawyers, you don't want to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> Did you always want to be involved in, in education and in higher education? No, I didn't. I, um, <clears throat> I'm an artist and uh, I always thought I would go into some field of art uh, and perhaps um, uh, architecture to pay the bills or something like that. But that was not a career path that was available to people of color at the time. And so um, uh, when I went to college uh, at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, uh, something special happened to me. I took um, a class in ancient Greek, fell madly in love with it, and um, I've spent uh, the rest of my academic career uh, in that field. And that's not a field that uh, leads in many directions. And I often tell people, yes, I, I have all of my degrees in classics, which is ancient Greek and Latin, and that's why I went into administration, because there's <laughs> no job market. Uh, to speak up in because they've been cutting back so much in, in those fields. But at the same time, are, are there particular skills and abilities that you garnered from that type of education and educational focus that today you find very helpful? Oh, absolutely. And first, first and foremost, the languages themselves. 
uh, ancient Greek and Latin are um, have uh, great relevance to uh, to English. Um, and so um, uh, being steeped in the classics, as they always say, uh, the um, has helped me um, in in my own um, uh, literacy and uh, development. But then there are rich bodies of um, of, uh, of writing and literature, um, poetry, philosophy, history, just a huge uh, amount of um, of material that I have found to be very, very relevant uh, to my work um, uh, regarding uh, leadership, uh, moral decisions, ethical uh, choices, uh, many, many things, uh, uh, in, uh, interaction with other cultures and the like, because uh, uh, ancient Greece, actually ancient Athens, um, and of course Rome uh, had many um, interactions with uh, other cultures in the Middle East, in the East Persia, and uh, to the South Carthage, which is Northern Africa. And so many of the issues that we deal with, including slavery and trade and all this, have long histories, the shadow of, of the, these cultures um, is still with us. Um, access um, uh, to the Mediterranean, the Bosphorus, all, all these um, uh, issues are, uh, are relevant today. And I found that, uh, that my field has been uh, helpful to me in um, uh, uh, developing my own style and my own uh, approach to work and leadership. It's a, I highly recommend it. There was a time in, in our American culture where most people who wanted to go into leadership studied the classics. And it's unfortunate that that is not the case now. And you can think of some people who could benefit from it, who should be nameless. Uh, but um, it's, it's an important field and, and uh, I'm happy with it. I stay close to it. Um, I, I read uh, 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 excerpts from poetry and, and uh, philosophy um, uh, during the week. And it's, it's a wonderful, rich field of study. It gives you a perspective and clearly you, you understand how to think uh, strategically. And yes. so uh, Chancellor Carroll, quite often uh, I'm, I'm asked to disseminate the messages, the communication that you send to your district and, and several members. They're very comprehensive. They always or almost always use uh, thoughtful metaphors. And it's clear that writing is something that's important to you. Do, you. do you use your writing to think things through in addition to a, a, a means of communication? Or are you just simply able to just, in one, one fell swoop, just put it together and send it out? Well, I use writing to, uh, for both, actually. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, uh, you know, they, it is the case that uh, you cannot think without words. And uh, so uh, as I write, um, uh, the ideas are sharpened, the approach is sharpened and the like, and then I just um, uh, send it out um, after that. So I use writing for, for both, both ends. There was a, a, a Roman censor uh, whose name was Cato who always said this, uh, rem tene, verba sequentor, uh, which translates, know the thing, 
and the words will follow. In other words, if you really understand your topic well, you don't need to think much about writing. The words will simply flow. And, uh, and I believe that uh, because as long as I feel comfortable with the topic and well-informed, then it's very easy for me to, to write. And so I write pretty quickly and, um, uh, and usually uh, employ some sort of um, uh, metaphor or some sort of uh, story from mythology uh, illustrating uh, the various points. And my big point is, as Aristotle said, there's nothing new under the sun. And people who are leaders are sometimes overwhelmed by uh, the, uh, the challenges that affect them. And they approach the, the challenges as if this is the first time in the history of, of the universe that such a challenge has emerged. And a good leader understands that everything is cyclical. Uh, the challenges that we face today have been faced before, and it's often useful to reach back and know about how those challenges were met in the past, uh, both uh, uh, in terms of um, uh, negative outcomes and in terms of positive outcomes. So that's one of the reasons I like to um, uh, use that approach in my, in my own writing so that people can see subtly uh, that whatever it is we're dealing with is not new. It's simply our contemporary version of, uh, of an old problem. And in this day of age of tweets and short sound bites, it seems that you, you purposefully carve out time and, and, and space. Uh, I don't know how, but to really, um, you know, flesh out important ideas and to think, and uh, that element of leadership is—I think it's quite often if you're a community college president, it's difficult to do. And it's—is it accurate to say that you you deliberately carve out time where you can um, think about? you know, larger issues and, and contextualize information for uh, everyone in the district? Oh, absolutely. Uh, every day uh, I, I find a time, sometimes I schedule an appointment with, with myself for exactly that purpose. Uh, because um, uh, to me, one of the, the uh, top criteria for uh, successful leadership is, is uh, excellent communication. And that cannot happen. Um, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen on the fly. One has to take communication seriously and make time for it, think about it, shape it, um, and then be willing to, to, to send it out to people so that they can uh, appreciate uh, your point of view. Yeah, I think that's one of the for some, it's a surprise uh, if you go from being a dean or a vice president or a different position. Once you're the, the CEO, everything you say, uh, people will, if not take seriously, you'll, you'll hear about it, even if you're perhaps you were joking. And, and 
squelching rumors or that or what comes back to you that you supposedly said but you never said is one of the absolutely yeah so all all the more reason to uh take writing and all forms of communication seriously and i always like to be uh first and best in getting the word out whether it's about the budget or uh, about um, some uh, issue with which we're dealing uh, in order to uh, head off rumors uh, and uh, dis- dis- and dispel um, any types of gossip or, or, or things that may be going on. Just the other day, I ran into um, uh, this, this issue um, uh, where people knowing that we're cutting back in the budget as everyone else is, there was a rumor that uh, there were going to be uh, classified staff layoffs. Well, nothing could have been um, uh, farther from the truth. But uh, I wrote about that immediately to uh, to to put it in uh, context uh, and let people know that that many things are going to happen. But layoffs is not uh, laying off people is not one of the things that's going to happen. The worst thing a leader can do is to say, "Well, that's ridiculous. They should know better." Well, people don't know better. And when people are afraid, they can sometimes uh, fear the worst. Uh, and um, so it's very important to have that kind of depth of, of, of communication. So it sounds, you, you try to, as you said, be out in front and preemptive yes. as much as possible. And in this environment where people can disseminate information or you know, misinformation or, or disinformation so rapidly, you would say, recommend yeah. to leaders that they try to, to the extent possible, get out there, get out there early. Absolutely, and if it can't be written, some, sometimes a leader has to select um, the uh, form of communication. Sometimes it's sequentially one-on-one communications with leaders within the organization is appropriate. Other times have holding a, um, a, a special forum where people can express themselves um, is uh, is another way, and then the written form. Uh, my personal uh, style, my personal strategy is all three. Beginning with the one-on-one, moving into groups, first small, then large, um, and following up with, uh, with a written uh, summary. And that has worked well for me as a strategy over the years. It, it takes time, but that's the job. The job is communication because we, um, we work together. We do not work in a, in a strict hierarchy. We work in a participatory governance mode. And to make that work, uh, particularly when we also have collective bargaining, elective boards, everything else, requires close attention to communication. That, that, is, the, that is the art of the realm. So what if someone's either early in their career, they could be a college president reporting to a chancellor, or maybe they're now a superintendent president or even in a chancellor position. Uh, in addition to some of what you've talked about concerning communication, what are other, from your perspective, uh, important qualities, skills, or elements of the job that have to be you know, prioritized in order to be successful? 
there are lots of uh, moving parts in a, in a leadership role, particularly a CEO role. Um, budget is certainly one of them. Um, the uh, personnel uh, law is, is another uh, component that's important. Community relations uh, is, is one uh, and, uh, and the like. But the, the glue that holds it all together is relationships. Um, there's, you know, the, the, the famous quotation by uh, Maya Angelou, which says that I've learned in life that people forget what you said, people forget what you did, but people never forget how you made them feel. And uh, the only way to get to that third piece is through uh, forging relationships and having a good uh, interpersonal communication uh, at all levels. The, um, the key is with whom? Uh, for a CEO, especially a district level CEO, uh, that would be the board. Uh, the, uh, the board of trustees is not a monolithic entity. It's a collection of individuals who have uh, their own uh, backgrounds, their own learning styles, their own uh, hopes and dreams for the future. And it's important for a good CEO to know them, not just as a board, but as individuals. And so uh, in the pre-COVID days, um, I would have a, a, a cycle of meetings and lunches, dinners, uh, and <clears throat> breakfast uh, sessions with each member of the board, certainly a weekly session with the board president. That is the best way to find out, to check in with them, to find out um, uh, how they are viewing things, what they're concerned about, and to head off uh, problems before they develop, <clears throat> before they develop into a, a fuller form. After the board, another group that's important to have good relationship with is the faculty. They are the resident leadership class within the institution with responsibility for the most important part of what we do, and that is the actual education of our students. Faculty members over time tend to view administrators as other, uh, as if we came from some other planet. And um, one, one of the things that has served me well, one of the strategies that has served me well is to pre present guest lectures in their classes. And there always comes a time uh, when um, uh, they have to teach a segment on ancient Greece or Rome or Greek tragedy. And I always at the convocations hold up a little um, uh, cardboard sign that says, we'll teach for free. Uh, and I love doing that because I love interacting with the students. Uh, but above all, um, I love um, the opportunity for faculty members to uh, observe me uh, in the role uh, as, as an academic so that I'm not other to them. I, I, I like to call them boss after I do that because they're, they're my boss uh, for, those, for those sessions. And so that goes a, a long way uh, toward uh, creating a climate and an environment in which uh, decisions can be made in the participatory governance mode um, uh, that uh, are more comfortably made uh, because I am not other to the faculty. I'm actually one of them, even if, if it's just for, for a moment. So they, they associate me with understanding what they do. 
Um, and uh, one of the, the big mistakes that CEOs make is to allow themselves to appear to be other and, uh, and not to engage the faculty uh, in, uh, in, in what they do, or at least not to, not to appear to engage the faculty in, in what they do. And I just think that's a very important aspect of our work together. The, um, uh, and it's certainly stood me in good stead over the years. And of course, working, um, uh, visiting the classified professionals and getting to know them, uh, meeting with the student leaders as well. All of this is, is important in establishing um, a sort of tapestry of relationships within the institution uh, that are, are critical because the CEO in order to lead needs to have good solid uh, relationships and good solid, uh, wonderful rapport with all of the people uh, of the organization. In the San Diego Community College District, we have uh, uh, over 5,000 employees. And um, although I can't uh, know them all or meet them all, uh, I can demonstrate to them that I respect what they do and that I understand what they do because of the, these uh, types of encounters. That was very helpful. So can we talk a little bit about the Community College Baccalaureate degree? What about it? Can we, well, if Absolutely. we can talk, if we can talk a little bit about it. Um, Absolutely. Could you, because, uh, could that's you been, just. That's been my workout in tenacity. <laughs> right. So would you, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about how you worked with, among others, Senator Marty Block and, and others, and just the journey to even get the pilot uh, back in 2014. And, and then perhaps what, what's your motive, you know, what was the initial motivation uh, for the Community College Baccalaureate? Um, uh, well, the Community College Baccalaureate has a history nationally. There are 24 states uh, that empower their community colleges to offer bachelor's degrees. But these bachelor's degrees are in fields that lead to jobs, workforce, they, and, and they are not intended to turn community colleges into four-year institutions. It's a very practical movement nationally, recognizing that in many fields, particularly in allied health fields, the associate degree has either become obsolete or is becoming obsolete in favor of bachelor's degrees. So in fields like uh, uh, dental hygiene, respiratory care and the like, um, if you want your students to uh, have gainful employment, they will, they will need a bachelor's degree in order to do that. At the same time, these degrees are not degrees that are offered by universities, uh, and especially in, in, in California. So this becomes a no brainer. Um, uh, the, uh, the Community College Baccalaureate uh, enables uh, us to do these things for a community college to offer a bachelor's program uh, in the local community. So accessibility is the first, uh, is the first hurdle. Uh, second, um, the uh, community college is then able to uh, offer a degree that leads to guaranteed jobs at the end and good paying jobs. So that's number two, since workforce education is uh, a fundamental 
uh, part of the community college mission. Number three, affordability. Uh, the community college can, can offer a bachelor's degree at far less cost uh, than, uh, than universities do. Um, and uh, even though universities don't offer these degrees, um, the community colleges uh, still uh, operate with a more competitive um, uh, financial structure. So in California, you can get a bachelor's degree in one of these fields um, for $10,560 for, for all four years. Um, and uh, that compares to um, the CSU, which the average bachelor's cost is 27,000. So, and then finally, the issue of high quality. Community colleges in many cases already offer associate degrees in, in many of these fields. So they have the faculty in place through their bond measures, they have facilities and equipment in place. So they're, they're able to do this um, uh, in a very efficient, cost-efficient uh, uh, manner. Uh, so for me, this is a no-brainer uh, as I learned more about it. How to persuade people to do it, however, means you have to surmount their prejudices, uh, which, which takes time and takes education. Um, and um, so when we got into this, um, uh, Marty Block, then Senator Block, had been the president of the San Diego Community College District Board. Um, our district is one of the two community college districts in California that belongs to the National League for Innovation. And uh, at one of the meetings, Marty heard a lot about what other community colleges were doing in the bachelor's field and became impassioned uh, by it. So he and I talked and when he went into the Senate, uh, he moved forward with this, um, with this uh, legislation. Uh, and uh, it was the, we called it the incredibly shrinking bill <laughs> because it started out uh, very um, grandiose and um, optimistic and through the legislative process was whittled down until it became a pilot program for 15 um, uh, institutions, 15 programs only. But that was the foot in the door. So we decided that, that that's where we would go um, and uh, that we would build upon that in the future. Uh, we've been, uh, and it was a very difficult, very bruising uh, prospect. Uh, the, um, everyone was suspicious. Uh, it took a long time for people to become comfortable with it. Uh, but we, we ended with the pilot. Now we know that it works, works in California. In fact, um, when I was testifying to one of the legislative committees uh, uh, and I mentioned how well things were working in this regard in Florida, in Texas, in, in Washington state, um, I, I, the person interrupted me and said, Florida, what does that have to do with California? And th then I realized again, as, I, um, as a student of California, um, California doesn't like to reinvent the wheel. California likes to invent the wheel uh, itself and is very, very skeptical about bringing in programs from, from elsewhere. So we had that to deal with again. Uh, we, we've had a setback or two, uh, but uh, this year we're going forward uh, with a new bill, new legislation to uh, make the pilot programs permanent and to expand the opportunity 
to all community colleges uh, in California through a process of review and approval in the state chancellor's office. Um, and uh, this time around, we are doing these things. First of all, we, we are happy that the statewide academic Senate has reversed its position. Uh, it was opposed initially to this, feeling that this was a mission creep and with, with more information and seeing the success and the students who are being served, uh, they have changed their position to support, which is a huge, huge uh, and wonderful uh, outcome. We're, we're in uh, discussions with the representatives of the Cal State University system uh, to see if we can get them to um, uh, remove their objections. And those discussions are going well. It, it doesn't matter that they don't offer these degrees. They were concerned about the fact that we would be offering degrees uh, in a territory, the baccalaureate territory, which they viewed um, uh, as theirs. And now we uh, have a third champion. We began the process with Senator Marty Block. Uh, then the, the um, baton was picked up by Senator Jerry Hill, who did a remarkable job in extending the pilot but has now turned out. And we are just thrilled that uh, Assembly member, uh, Assemblyman Jose Medina is going to be introducing the bill in this current session. Uh, so um, this is important for our students. It's, it fits the mission of community colleges. It brings that mission up to date in terms of workforce education. Uh, and uh, I intend to uh, work as hard as I know how in order to um, help this legislation pass. And having the chair of the education committee as the chief sponsor is is certainly it's it's wonderful. Yeah. That, that's Great a test that's a testament to effective advocacy and relationship building. And, yeah. and and that's it's going to be interesting to see. So it strikes me just you know when I think about your your career and your your education background and and everything that you've done, you you certainly could have gone into to to be a, a president at the university level. Why community colleges? Why are you at a community college? Well, I, I began my my first uh, junior administrative experience was at the University of Pittsburgh, and I did well in it. Again, why administration? Because I'm a classicist. <laughs> And uh, from there, I went to the University of Southern Maine um, as um, an associate dean uh, and, uh, and an assistant professor of classics. And while I was at the University of Maine, of Southern Maine, um, two things happened. The first was that uh, the university system began to uh, start the formation of a community college in York County, Maine, which is the southernmost county in Maine. Uh, and I was very fascinated. Uh, I was fascinated with what they were doing. This, this was my first uh, encounter with this animal called community colleges. Mm -hmm. And the second was, I was simply frustrated uh, at the university because I was responsible for the um, arts and sciences uh, curriculum. That was the largest college within the, the university. And I was quite frankly tired of begging uh, professors uh, to teach freshmen and sophomore students. Nobody wanted to do that. Everyone wanted to relegate that to graduate students. Um, and, um, and I thought this is, this is, not, this is not right. Um, and so uh, when I 
decided to leave Maine. There was a particularly brutal winter and I decided that that was pushed me over, over the edge. Uh, I decided to leave uh, uh, Maine and I had two job opportunities, two job uh, offers that I was working with. One was to be Dean of University College at um, Cal State Dominguez Hills. And the other one was to be president of this little community college in uh, Marin County, uh, California. And I thought I was going to continue my trajectory at the university level and go to Cal State Dominguez Hills. But uh, as, as luck would have it, uh, there was no retreat, faculty retreat area for me because Cal State Dominguez Hills was not approved to have a faculty retreat area in classics. And so we, we struggled with where, where, where would I fit? English, no. Uh, these are classical languages. Modern languages, no. These are ancient languages. History, no. Um, I'm not a historian. And so after going back and forth and back and forth on this issue of faculty retreat, um, I got a call from, uh, from uh, California that said, do you want this job or not, basically? And I said, well, yes. And so that's how, <laughs> that's how I came to California, knowing very little about community colleges, but knowing a lot about uh, uh, higher education and about uh, relationships. And that all of that has served me well. And so, um, uh, and then all you have to do is, is set foot on a community college or go to a commencement and you're, you're in love. I fell in love um, because there were faculty members who actually loved teaching and loved students and wanted to teach them. They were devoted. They weren't running away in order to pursue research. They really wanted to be with students. The students were not indifferent to what they were doing. Uh, they had made sacrifices uh, for their uh, programs and uh, were very serious about them. And uh, the culmination in my first commencement to see people in tears and, um, and with such great pride was very, very different from the commencements I was used to where everyone was running around trying to catch the beach balls that were being bounced around. Um, and I thought, this is where I want to be, where people are serious about uh, their work, serious about learning and filled with love for it. And so uh, uh, all you have to do is experience community college life for, for one minute and, and you're hooked. Uh, I, I love community colleges. And then every now and then over my career, I've had uh, people wanting to entice me back into the university world. And uh, I, I, I would never have wanted to and never would want to because this is where I, this is where I belong. Well, we're... I think there are a lot of people who are very pleased that you made that decision and continue to, to do that. So you're retiring from your current position in 2021. I think you extended it uh, at the board's invitation or yep. the board's uh, pleading. Uh, and then my understanding is you will not be retiring to Tahiti or something to relax on a beach, uh, but you're going to do more work. Uh, you founded the California Community College Baccalaureate Association. And would you mind telling us any, what, what do you see in, in terms of your transition? 
Yes, we, we will get that uh, up and running. We, we have a board that I have to finish writing the, the bylaws, but uh, effective uh, July 1, where I hope I hope will be in full uh, power, uh, the, the organization will provide uh, assistance to uh, community colleges that want to develop back bachelor's degrees. And I'm assuming that our California legislation passes. Um, and will provide uh, professional development for, for faculty where needed. Uh, there are lots of, of um, uh, moving parts in this uh, uh, movement and uh, perhaps a conference uh, occasionally and a close relationship with one of our great supporters, which is the National Community College Baccalaureate Association. Uh, so uh, I, I, I would like to spend my time focused on that. I'll also be serving on a few uh, a few boards here and there, but uh, I, I love my work as chancellor. But it's it's time time for me to to um, make a change because um, now I want to focus more than than have the broad range of responsibilities. Um, yeah. And are there um, hobbies or other endeavors that perhaps you'll have more time for that you look forward to? Hobbies, well. Um, Hiking, reading, playing the guitar, a uh, little bit of piano here and there, uh, and um, those are things that I do. But anyone who knows me well, uh, Larry, knows that uh, service is is what I'm about. I, I'm 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 happiest when I'm doing something that's going to benefit others, uh, particularly uh, particularly students. So. Uh, th that's what that, that's what gives me the the, the greatest uh, pleasure. Um, uh, the newest board that uh, that I have joined is the um, the National um, College Promise Board um, that um, uh, Martha Cantor uh, uh, operates, and so uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, uh, to that work, uh, and I also will be. Um, following what happens in the California community colleges, but through the baccalaureate lens. Um, I will not be um, trying to recreate my career as an interim anything within the, the community colleges. I, I want to do something new um, uh, and focused. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's time and, um, uh, and I have something to do. And when I think about last year when the, the board and I were having discussions about, oh, one more year we'll, and um, you can provide a transition and this, that, and the other, I thought, well, why not? And look what has happened, <laughs> the worst year <laughs> in, in the history of the world, the confluence of um, the horrible budget cuts, um, the, um, the pandemic, uh, the uh, the explosion in uh, racial injustice and everything that has happened uh, that has upended uh, all of our work. So in, in some ways, though, I'm glad that given my experience within the district um, that I'm still here to help us work, work through some really tough decisions. Um, the toughest one, which I had to draw on all of my relationships uh, for was um, the decision we made on Friday the 13th of March to close the district on Monday the 16th of March um, and have all of the faculty members trained in online instruction uh, and then 
reopen on the um, on Monday, the 23rd of March, uh, with with all of our classes online and all of our functions remote. This was a huge undertaking, um, especially since um, not all institutions were in that mode at the time. We tend to be the first out uh, of the shoot. And uh, there were concerns and, and people were upset and the like, but I think having the relationships that I had, um, uh, which le led to a great deal of trust, uh, enabled me and enabled our presidents to uh, and our vice chancellors to pull this off. Uh, and so, um, and we, we again made the decision to be online again for intercession in spring. It's too soon to know what we're gonna do um, in, um, in, in the summer, uh, the, the summer coming up. But um, these are, are tough decisions and um, one can't make them in, in a vacuum. And uh, uh, so, so this has been a tough year, but I've learned a lot um, uh, during the course of the year. And I've also learned what a wonderful institution this is um, and uh, how hard people are working uh, to make sure that our students uh, can, can continue their education, even though we're in the midst of a pandemic. Well, uh, Chancellor Constance Carroll, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the inaugural Leading Community Colleges in California. And uh, we wish you all the best. And um, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us for the next Leading Community Colleges in California podcast for more inspiring conversations with California community college leaders on their own professional and personal journeys and on the most significant and challenging issues confronting leaders in higher education today.